0: Hello and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we will be discussing Book 2 of Homer's Iliad. Today's lecture will be broken up into three parts. First, we will briefly consider a moment from Book 1 that we did not touch on last time. Second, we will consider the dream that Zeus sends to Agamemnon and Agamemnon's decision to tell the Achaeans to retreat back to the boats and to go home. Why does he do this? It's a very perplexing passage. And finally, we'll turn to the catalog of ships. It seems as if it could be the most boring part of the Iliad. However, I would like to insist and even to show you why I don't think that that's the case. All right, with that said, let's turn back to the end or near the end of book one of the Iliad. Um, So, one thing that we did not mention last time is Achilles' request to his divine mother Thetis. He asks her to ask Zeus to honor him because she has claimed that Zeus owes her a favor. At one time, Zeus was shackled and Thetis led the hundred-handed monster Briareus to free Zeus. I was at a lecture once that suggested that Briareus, being many-handed was symbolic for some kind of populist revolt um, in order to free Zeus. I don't know if this is true, And I don't know exactly how to carry out some kind of metaphorical reading like that throughout the text. Um, But however it may be, we know that Thetis, uh, according to her claims, helped Zeus in a crucial moment of vulnerability. And the help was so decisive that Zeus could not help but recognize that it laid some kind of claim on him, or in other words, that he would have to help Thetis in the future, um, that it would be just to do so. Or it may be, this is another alternative, is that Zeus was able to gain a pretext uh, for accomplishing some other goal that he had in mind already. It really all depends upon how much Zeus really cares about justice, or if he recognizes some kind of just claims that exist beyond his will or not. Um, When we turn to the opening page of book two, uh, we could add that it is awfully striking, at least to me, that in book one, Zeus agreed to Thetis's request to honor Achilles, to make it so that the uh, Trojans would kill countless Achaeans and come right up to burn the ships. And only then um, would they be stopped. Zeus agrees to all this. However, at the beginning of book two, we see him agonizing over how to accomplish this request. In other words, at least as Homer presents it, it would appear that Zeus agreed to an end or purpose without actually having thought through, in a full sense, the means by which that end could be acquired, which could mean one of two things. At least, on one hand, Zeus might hold himself to be so powerful that whatever it is that he agrees to, in principle, he'll be able to find a pathway to it at some point in the future, or Zeus is somehow foolish or not quite as wise as he believes that he is or as many think that he is. Um, However, that may be, Zeus, still even at the bottom of the first page of book two, points out that the gods clash no more. And this is the basis upon which he tries to fool Agamemnon into thinking he can succeed in taking the walls of Troy. Um, We could say that when the gods disagree, uh, real progress cannot be made. Their wills have to be united for goals to be accomplished. They have to share the same mind or become briefly, uh, we could say, almost monotheistic or oriented towards one goal in order for there not to be perpetual strife. So Zeus calls murderous dream to come to him. And he demands that the dream speak word for word what he, Zeus, says. The dream takes a few liberties with Zeus's request. First of all, Zeus doesn't tell the dream what appearance to take on. Maybe that doesn't matter too much to him. But nevertheless, the dream takes on the appearance of Nestor and cries out about responsibilities. He blames Agamemnon for sleeping, which some of us might say is doing what is necessary. If you're going to be in a war for 10 years, can you really forego sleep? Um, but uh, as the dream presents it, rather than nobly foregoing this pleasure, or, or sorry, uh, that Agamemnon ought to forego this pleasure of sleeping, and he should be spending the entire night figuring out what to do. At the end of the speech, the dream adds in lines that Zeus did not propose. Um, when the dream tells Agamemnon, that he must not let the, quote, loss of memory uh, overcome him. In general, though, the dream tells Agamemnon that if he attacks the walls of Ilion now, of Troy, he will be successful. This is a lie. Zeus, having, as we already mentioned, promised to honor Achilles, wishes for the Achaeans to attack precisely because this will provide an opportunity for the Trojans to slaughter them. Agamemnon is called a fool by the narrator for feeling hopes that would not come to pass in light of the dream. Though, strikingly, we might ask this. Is it possible that Agamemnon does not completely believe the dream? Um, We could say that the dream and what Agamemnon does in light of it is one of the strangest and most difficult parts to interpret um, in the Iliad. Or at least many readers find it perplexing. For, after receiving this murderous and lying dream, Agamemnon gathers up the leaders of the Achaeans and tells them about the dream. He omits the lines from the end of the dream uh, that were added. Um, And we can say that instead of having the Achaeans begin to march against the walls of Troy immediately, Agamemnon instead initiates what he calls a time-honored tradition or custom and says that he will tell the men to retreat to the ships and to go home. So, on one hand, the dream is a lie. On the other hand, Agamemnon chooses not to at least directly do what the dream tells him to do and takes an intermediate step that was not at all asked for by Zeus, and he tells the men to retreat. Again, this is incredibly perplexing. I want to propose a couple interpretive possibilities. Here is the first line uh, of interpretation for which we might try to understand what it is that Agamemnon is doing when he does this. So many people take Agamemnon to simply be a fool or a blundering idiot. This reading is not without its textual evidence. For the men do indeed retreat and have to be rallied uh, by Athena through her her emissary Odysseus, who takes Agamemnon's scepter. And Agamemnon says nothing as Odysseus does this. Um, I'm inclined against this reading. Agamemnon is the leader of this grand expedition. And I suspect that he cannot have risen to rule without being at least somewhat impressive if he's not simply admirable. So what are other interpretive possibilities? And and maybe just to add a little bit to this uh, line of him being an idiot, a lot of people say like, look, uh, Agamemnon failed to honor the priests of Apollo in book one. He selfishly tried to keep uh, the young lady from that priest that he enjoyed, his adventure wife. Um, as Phokin Dionysus might put it. Um, He does all that. And then not only do the Achaeans have to suffer on his account alone, um, as far as he understands things, or sorry, as far as the Achaeans understand things, but in addition, Agamemnon ends up insulting the most powerful warrior at the Achaeans' disposal um, and dishonors him by taking his lovely uh, adventure fiance or whatever you would like to call her. And so Agamemnon heaps on ruin upon everybody through the plague and arrows that Apollo sends, and he deprives them of their greatest fighter. Um, and so after that happens, he tells the Achaeans to go home, and indeed they immediately begin to go home. So all of this makes Agamemnon look uh, awfully silly, I suppose. But I want to propose at least two other possibilities that might save Agamemnon or make him out to be at least a little bit more interesting. The first less adventurous hypothesis is that Agamemnon could be hoping um, for what happens in Book 9. In Book 9, he also proposes that the Achaeans retreat, but he is immediately rebuffed, and instead the men assert a new plan for bringing Achilles back. They refuse to go home, and in this way, they are uh, potentially, or rather they are rallied by being asked to go home they're given an opportunity to show that they want to fight. On this reading, Agamemnon would have failed to see here in book one how demoralized his men currently are after being away from home for nine years. But he wouldn't simply be foolish insofar as a similar claim about going home later in the book does have a rallying effect. So this time-honored custom might be designed to challenge the men to stir the fire within their spirits to make them show how much they want to fight the leader says, go home, and the men say, no, we will stay. That could be something that Agamemnon hopes for. Um, so that's a, a less ambitious possibility of trying to save Agamemnon. Um, let me propose one more way to interpret this section of the book that's a more ambitious uh, attempt to save Agamemnon. I'm not entirely sure uh, how this reading bears out, but let me let me propose it anyway. So, um, Agamemnon could be hoping to liberate his men from concern with prophecy or reliance on the gods. That is, if the seer Calchas predicted that the war would take 10 years, and now Agamemnon tells the men to go home, now in the 10th year of the war, he could be preparing them to fight with their own arms, as Machiavelli might say, or not to rely on what the gods say or to believe that the gods are, if they exist, capricious, and that while they might hope to or may indeed affect the battle, their motivations are not reliable, or they are not intelligible to human beings. The gods will be what they will be, and they are not predictable. This line of interpretation is partially bolstered by Odysseus' public response after the men are gathered again. He says, quote, let's hold out a little longer and see." if Calchas has divined the truth or not. In other words, we don't know if, according to Odysseus, we can rely on Calchas's divination. And so courage is required to see things through. Likewise, Nestor blames the men for scuttling back home, quote, before they can even learn if the vows of Zeus with his dark, cloudy shield are false or not. Both Odysseus and Nestor do not see the prophecy or vow of Zeus as something to put firm trust in. And this interpretation would also be consistent with what we saw earlier, which is that Agamemnon does not think that the priest of Apollo has any, or like he does not think that the priest of Apollo can really hurt him or the the Achaeans. It may be that uh, Agamemnon even believes that the men have only interpreted a plague or men dying as an attack from Apollo, and that Agamemnon sees no such reason to interpret things in this way. At any rate, we can say that he was very uh, threatening with the priest and seemed not to take what he had to say seriously. In that way, then, it might make some sense that he would like to interpret um, the gods as being unreliable or not always likely to do what you expect them to do. And this might be why he wants to try to liberate his men from a concern with the gods. So uh, to repeat, either our first interpretive possibility, Agamemnon is an idiot. The second possibility is that Agamemnon thought that the men would be rallied by him telling them to go home. They wouldn't even attempt to start to run, that they would rally themselves. Um, and the third suggestion is that he was trying to liberate them from a concern with what the gods have to say about what will happen. Another fourth minor possibility that has not yet been discussed is that in light of Agamemnon being maybe in a difficult position with Achilles uh, pulling back, he might wish to push some of the responsibility for ruling into the arms of others like Odysseus and Nestor. Um, so that the men are more willing to fight in light of Agamemnon's failure to keep Odysseus, or sorry, to keep Achilles involved in the war, That's a fourth possibility, I suppose. Okay, With that said, let's turn to our final focus of this lecture. Let's look at the catalog of ships. Um, I'm extremely excited to talk about the catalog of ships, even if you may not be yet interested in hearing about it. Um, we can say this, on the face of it, The Catalog of Ships is not an exciting part of the book to read. There's an interesting thinker that was recently brought to my attention um, named Pierre Grimes. He's a philosophy professor. He's extremely old. I'm not quite sure if he's dead or still alive a little bit, but um, he has a lecture. I'll link it um, on the Substack page uh, on book two of the Iliad. And he says something like the following He offers a joking, remark before talking about the catalog of ships, and he says that he wants to advance a theory. Homer is a dope. He is paid by the word to write, so he adds lots of insignificant details that do nothing to advance the story. Now, it's easy to fall prey to some version of this statement when you read the catalog of ships. However, one of my former teachers said something to this effect. In a great work, when you encounter a boring passage, you should should, um, be even more on alert so that something important doesn't slip past your notice. We know that many parts of the Iliad are exciting, so it's up to Homer whether the part of the Iliad where you're reading is exciting or not. Um, We generally enjoy being excited, so if Homer makes something boring, we have to ask, well, why did he do that? he must know that many human beings are going to skip quickly past something that's boring because that's what many human beings do. However, a a human being who, having read the book up to this point, believes that they have something very important to learn from Homer um, ought to take the catalog of ships very slowly and carefully and see if, while it is awfully boring in many points, there's not something that we could learn or see from this section of the book. And we could add this. No less an authority than Thucydides calls our attention to the catalog of ships when he offers a few remarks on the Trojan War. Thucydides especially calls our attention to the number of ships that Agamemnon had under his control compared to the rest of the cities. In a way, Thucydides suggests that the war has little to do with Helen and much more to do with Agamemnon's desire for good things, and that he has compelling power to make others help him get good things. In approaching the catalog then, let's follow up on Thucydides' observations by beginning with what we can get out of the numbers in the catalog. Then we'll turn to a few striking passages that really stick out. Okay, so there are 1,186 ships mentioned in the catalog. There are 29 different Greek leaders who embark on the voyage and who lead men into battle. Doing a little bit of simple math, we can see that there are roughly 40 ships per group or per captain. Of course, some have many more and some have far fewer. Agamemnon has 100 ships directly under his command, more than any other individual, and he provides another 60 ships for the Arcadians to transport their troops. His brother Menelaus has 60 ships, which is to say that between the brothers, There are 220 ships under their command, or more than one-sixth of the ships. A lot of trust and agreement would need to be placed between other captains, or would be required if they wanted to form a fleet that rivals this, or if they really wish to resist um, the commands or requests of the brothers um, from Atreus. But I want to turn to the question of whether the war was caused by Helen or whether it was caused by a desire for gain or some combination thereof, more in book three. I think we'll see much more decisive evidence for that there. And I don't want to just rely on the number of ships. But nevertheless, it is interesting to, I think, consider. Now let's turn to a couple of things that really stick out during the catalog. Um, Some oddities, I suppose. Here's the first one. Homer begins the catalog by calling on the muses he suggests that so many human beings and so many boats were part of this venture that it is beyond the merely human mind to recall such information. Only with the God's help can he possibly hope to fully recover this information for us. If we were following Thucydides' lead in this moment, we would be tempted to say that Homer is magnifying the importance of this event. As Thucydides points out, Every man believes that the war that he participates in is the greatest one to date. Only after the war is he able to regain his sobriety and accept that it is likely that the ancestral wars were of greater magnitude than his own conflict. A second point. Of all the cities and captains mentioned, Telamonian Ajax gets the shortest mention by far. Perhaps this is because Ajax is the kind of man who does not need to advertise his excellence. Um, to use this sort of modern metaphor to understand him, we could say that rather than officiously telling you that he is Dr. Ajax, he would rather just say and do interesting things. Another possibility is that since Homer has called on the Muses, it may be that the muser sorry, that the Muses favor Ajax less than they do other men. Because, as we see throughout the Iliad, he relies much more on his own strength, virtue, and shield than he does on the gods when he fights. That the muses can be jealous or have their favorites or even their enemies is confirmed by our next observation. So here's a third point from the Catalog of Ships. And I think that this one is especially striking, Uh, perhaps the most important moment in the Catalog of Ships. Um, Nestor is introduced as leading men from his own city of Pylos, in addition to a number of other cities. Um, one of these cities, Dorian, is mentioned as where the Muses met the Thracian man Tamaris or Thamaris. Uh Thamarus was a minstrel who boasted to high heaven that he could outsing the Muses. The Muses were enraged. And so they maimed him and ripped away his voice. And they did not stop here. They wiped his mind of the harping arts. Which is to say, they punished him by first indiscriminately harming him. Next, by removing his capability to act on the desire to sing. And finally, by removing the knowledge that would, a- that would enable the capability. What do you make of this reaction by the muses? Rather than being indifferent to a mere mortal competitor whom they probably shouldn't bother to compare themselves with, they angrily attack him and rob him of his abilities. Homer must have learned something very important from this example. For, as we recently saw, Homer claims that he is unable to offer the catalog of ships without the Muses' aid. He does not try to outsing the Muses, and he doesn't want anyone else to think that he does either. Instead, he presents himself as a pious subordinate to them. Something else we can see um, from this example is that immediately after the destruction of Thameris is mentioned, it is said that Nestor led these troops from Pylos, Thrace, and other cities that were mentioned. Is it possible that Homer wished to indicate that Nestor was aware of some of the same lessons that he had learned? We will do a deep dive into Nestor in later sessions. But I was astonished during my most recent reading of the poem at how clever Nestor is and how many of his speeches begin with mentions of the past and how the ancestral is best. But then they, as far as I can tell, often or almost always end with a frank and practical appraisal of precisely what needs to be done in the current situation. That is um, an example that we'll see later on He proposes that dead bodies be collected during an armistice, but he also suggests that the Achaeans build a wall during this sacred time. In other words, Nestor often appears to rate the ancestral, divine, and sacred as most important. And yet, at the same time, he often casts an eye towards necessity and never allows the sacred to interfere with the handling of necessities. And speaking of necessity, we see that Nestor is in command of 90 ships, second only to Agamemnon in number of ships. Okay, here's a fourth and final note on the catalog. Among the people whom Achilles leads are the Achaeans, Hellenes, and Myrmidons. The Greeks as a whole are later known as the Hellenes. We always hear about Hellenic times, things of this nature. Could it be then that part of what forged the Hellenes into a people? Is their longing to participate in the glory of Achilles? That somehow by putting Achilles at the center or the heart of his poem, that's part of which, or part of the way in which Homer helps forge the Hellenes into a people, into the Hellenes. Um, Now, I don't at all insist that these are the only important things within the catalog of ships. I'm sure that there are many others. Um, And indeed, I would be grateful to hear from you. What are other things that you noticed in the catalog of ships that are worth mentioning? Well, that's all I have for you this time. Uh, I will see you next time when we turn to book three next week. Uh, Brian Cerberus Wilson out.